Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We're going to be covering Alma chapters 5 through 7 today. And in these chapters, Alma has left the judgment seat to bear pure testimony to the people. And he starts off in the city of Zarahemla, and then in chapter 7, he moves his way into the city of Gideon. But let's just jump right into chapter 5, because this is one of the best chapters in all of the Book of Mormon. In verse 6, Alma goes over the history, and he starts to talk about the Lord's mercy in freeing his people from bondage, both physically and spiritually. And this is a theme that we've gone over and over and over again in the scriptures, and that is that the prophets often will go back to history. Verse 6, Alma says, And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, you that belong to this church, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Yea, and have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long suffering towards them? And moreover, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? And that's a great question for us to ask ourselves as well. Do we remember the children of Israel? Do we remember what the pioneers went through? Do we remember all of the things that the Lord has done to preserve his people over time? And when they were acting righteously, he saved them. And when they were not acting righteously, they were destroyed and he judged them. So that's what he starts off with. And he goes and asks a few more questions about that. And then he starts talking about in verse 10, how we are saved. He says, and now I ask of you, on what conditions are they saved? Yea, what grounds had they hoped for salvation? What is the cause of their being loosed from the bands of death? Yea, and also the chains of hell. Great question that we also can ask for ourselves. In fact, this whole chapter is a question that we should go over consistently. Elder M. Russell Ballard said, I need to regularly take time to ask myself, how am I doing? It's kind of like having a personal private interview with yourself. As a guide for me during the private personal review, I like to read and ponder the introspective words found in the fifth chapter of Alma. So here we go. We're taking Elder M. Russell Ballard's advice. And we're going to be introspective and talk about how we need to change and how we are saved. Verse 11 continues, says, Behold, I can tell you, did not my father Alma believe in the words which were delivered by the mouth of Abinadi? And was he not a holy prophet? Did he not speak the words of God? And my father Alma believed them. So what's the first thing that we can do? Are we listening to the prophets? The prophets speak truth. Under what conditions are we saved? Well, number one, he talks about listening to the prophets, listening to the word of God. In verse 12, he continues, And according to his faith, there was a mighty change wrought in his heart. Behold, I say unto you that this is all true. Now we're talking about a mighty change of heart. I love Elder Renlund's Preserving the Heart's Mighty Change from his October 2009 conference address. This was suggested reading in the personal Come Follow Me manual. And in it, Elder Renlund talks about a heart transplant. Now, he he's a heart surgeon, just like our prophet. He would do these heart transplant surgeries. And oftentimes, he was always astounded that people would not keep up on their medication even after the transplant. If you put a new heart into a new person, there's a litany of drugs that you have to take and immunosuppressive so that the body doesn't go after the heart and kill it before it ever has a chance to take hold and work properly. And there's a specific regimen, and they have to be very cautious and very careful with this so that the body doesn't reject the heart. That means that there has to be a change. There has to be a change in behavior, and that change in behavior then can make the change in the heart. And then he makes that comparison to this scripture writing through here, where Alma had a change of heart. And now we ask ourselves, have we had a change of heart? Are we doing the things that we need to do to have that change of heart? And here's a quote from 
that talk. He says, to endure to the end, we need to be eager to please God and worship him with fervor and passion. This means we must maintain faith in Jesus Christ by praying, studying the scriptures, partaking of the sacrament each week, and having the Holy Ghost as our constant companion. We need to actively help and serve others and share the gospel with them. We need to be perfectly upright and honest in all things, never compromising our covenants with God or our commitments to men, regardless of circumstances. In our homes, we need to talk of, rejoice in, and preach of Christ so that our children and we ourselves will desire to apply the atonement in our lives. We must identify temptations that easily beset us and put them out of reach, way out of reach. Finally, we need to frequently biopsy our mighty changed hearts and reverse any signs of rejection. And brothers and sisters, isn't that what this is all about? This is what this chapter is all about, is looking for ways that we can manage this changing heart, this constantly changing heart, that we can allow it to make a change in us. Verse 14 asks, And now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenance? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Take a moment to reflect. Think about it. Have you been spiritually born of God? There's a quote by President Marion G. Romney, and he says, The verb convert means to turn from one belief of course to another, and conversion is a spiritual and moral change attending a change of beliefs with conviction. As used in the scriptures, converted generally implies not merely mental acceptance of Jesus and his teaching, but also a motivating faith in him and his gospel, a faith which works a transformation, an actual change in one's understanding of life's meanings and in one's allegiance to God, in interest, in thought, and in conduct. And I love that process. It is a process. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes change. And now let's go on to verse 15. It says, Do ye exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? Do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality and this corruption raised in incorruption to stand before God to be judged according to the deeds which have been done in the mortal body? I say unto you, can you imagine to yourselves that ye hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, Come unto me, ye blessed. For behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. These are these three verses right through here, 14, 15, and 16, are probably the best for that self-evaluation that Elder Ballard was talking about. And if we're striving really to do these things, then we are on the path to eternal life. And if we're not, then we need to make some changes and go from there. But I love in verse 14, and it also says down in 19, and I'll read that real quick. It says, I say unto you, can you look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? I say unto you, can you look up having the image of God engraven upon your countenances? And here again, he's talking about countenances. And is Christ's countenance emblazoned upon us? Do we have the light of Christ in our eyes? And it reminds me of a story that President Faust shared where he was talking about the building of the Jerusalem Center. And in order to put in the Jerusalem Center, they had to agree not to proselyte. In fact, he says here, after the lease had been signed, one of our friends insightfully remarked, oh, we know that you're not going to proselyte, but what are you going to do about the light that is in their eyes? 
He was referring to our students who were studying in Israel. Is the light of Christ shining through our eyes? Have we engraven his image upon our countenance? If we haven't, Alma warns in verse 21, I say unto you, ye will know at that day that ye cannot be saved. For there can no man be saved except his garments are washed white. Yea, his garments must be purified until they are cleansed from all stain. Through the blood of him whom it has been spoken by our fathers should come to redeem his people from their sins. But if we do understand and understand that Christ paid for our sins and that all we have to do is accept him, and keep his commandments, then aren't we on the right path? We are saved by the blood of Christ. Alma goes on further with more introspective questions in verses 27 and 28. He says, Have ye walked, keeping yourselves blameless before God? Could ye say, if you were called to die at this time, within yourselves that ye have been sufficiently humble, that your garments have been cleansed and made white through the blood of Christ, who will come to redeem his people from their sins? Behold, are ye stripped of pride? I say unto you, if ye are not, ye are not prepared to meet God. Behold, ye must prepare quickly, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and such an one hath not not eternal life. And of course, we know from President Benson that pride is the great sin of our generation, that it has led to the downfall of many civilizations. And it is the pride cycle that we see over and over in the scriptures, where, as Alma talked about in the beginning, where our forefathers have fallen into trouble. Are we in that area right now, too? Are we gaining pride? And he talks about how it happens, how we fall and get into that pride. He talks about envy. In verse 29, he says, Behold, I say, is there one among you who is not stripped of envy. I say unto you that such an one is not prepared. And I would that ye should prepare quickly, for the hour is close at hand, and he knoweth not when the time shall come, for such an one is not found guiltless. I was thinking about this scripture as I was pondering the reading, and I look at the world around us today, and isn't envy really one of the sources of all of this contention that we have going on right now in the world today? We have people who think they're better than other people. We have people who think that they're worse than other people. We have such great inequality that people are not willing to suppress their envy and to suppress their pride that they feel that they're entitled to other things. In fact, this is what Elder Holland had to say about it. He said, has been said that envy is one sin to which no one readily confesses. But just how widespread that tendency can be is suggested in the old Danish proverb, if envy were a fever, all the world would be ill. As others seem to grow larger in our sight, we think we must therefore be smaller. So unfortunately, we occasionally act that way. How does this happen, especially when we wish so much that it would not? I think one of the reasons is that every day we see allurements of one kind or another that tell us what we have is not enough. Someone or something is forever telling us we need to be more handsome or more wealthy, more applauded or more admired than we ourselves as being. We are told we haven't collected enough possessions or gone to enough fun places. We are bombarded with the messages that on the world scale of things we have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. But God does not work this way. I testify that no one of us is less treasured or cherished of God than another. I testify that he loves each of us, insecurities, anxieties, self-image and all. He doesn't measure our talents or our looks. He doesn't measure our professions or our possessions. He cheers on every runner, calling out that the race is against sin, not against each other. I know that if we will be faithful, there is a perfectly tailored robe of righteousness ready and waiting for everyone. Robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. May we encourage each other in our effort to win that prize. 
And as I see this and as I read this, I really think that we have such, we've developed such a society where the victim is so envious of those who he perceives are not victims. And the truth is, is that we're all victims of our own sin and of our own pride and of actions of other people who have harmed and maimed and hurt. And we need to strip ourselves of that if we're to really heal. It is only through the atonement of Jesus Christ that we can overcome this horrible disease that is plaguing our land. Thankfully, Christ has understood us. He knows what we're going through, and he leaves us a way to do so. But we have to listen to his voice. In fact, Alma warns in verse 38, Behold, I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call you, yea, and in his own name he doth call you, which is the name of Christ. And if you will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd, to the name by which ye are called, behold, ye are not the sheep of the good shepherd. We need to recognize his name, our name, and respond and go and do the things which he's asked us to do. And how do we know what is truth? This is where Alma gives a great lesson on how he came to know the truth. Now remember, this is Alma the Younger. This is Alma the Younger who was out doing a bunch of naughty things and fighting against the church and was confronted by an angel who shut his mouth and caused him to be in a coma for a few days. He doesn't ascribe that coma and that situation to why he knows. In fact, this is what he says, Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true, for the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit, and this is the Spirit of Revelation which is in me. He doesn't reference the angel that came to visit. No, it was the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is what confirms truth. And what did he have to do to get that witness? Fasted and prayed. So how do we gain a real testimony? We fast, we pray, we read, we study the scriptures. We do these things that Alma is asking us to do right now, which is ask the questions, the hard questions about ourselves if we're ready, if we are doing those things that would bring us closer to Christ. And if we do, we will have a testimony like Alma's. And this is his pure testimony. This is what he left the judgment seat to do. He says in verse 48, about halfway down, he says, I know that Jesus Christ shall come, yea, the Son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy and truth. And behold, it is he. He that cometh to take away the sins of the world, yea, the sins of every man who steadfastly believeth on his name. Pure, real testimony that we can incorporate into our lives that can become our testimonies too. And once we've taken in that testimony, then we can do what Alma invites us to do. He says in verse 61, I speak by way of command unto you that belong to the church, and unto those who do not belong to the church I speak by way of invitation, saying, Come and be baptized unto repentance, that ye also may be partakers of the fruit of the tree of life. And it's such a wonderful way he wraps up this marvelous chapter in the Book of Mormon. And I hope we will take the time to really study this chapter and do as Alma admonishes us. Chapter 6, pretty simple little chapter in the Book of Mormon, where it talks about how he was successful in Zarahemla. His sermon really hit home, and there were many converts and many people who repented and came back into the fold of God. Unfortunately, there were some who didn't, and those, he says, their names were blotted out. But he establishes more priests, and he does some reorganization of the church. And then there's a great little scripture here in verse 6. It says, Nevertheless, the children of God were commanded that they should gather themselves together off and join 
praying and fasting and mighty prayer on behalf of the welfare of the souls of those who knew not God. So basically what he does is he talks to the members who have come back, who are active again, and he commands them a few things. Number one, to meet together oft, which of course we're not able to do right now, but we soon will. And when we do, we should rejoice. But then also to pray and fast for the welfare of those who are not members of the church, who are seeking truth, or who maybe aren't even seeking truth, but need to be. Now, let's compare the people in Zarahemla with the people in Gideon. The members in Gideon are a lot more righteous, and they seek ways to build up each other. And that means that instead of Alma having to admonish them to really be introspective and think about all these things, he can just talk about the Savior Jesus Christ. And I love this chapter. And this is the verse that I want to start off with in verse 7. He says, For behold, I say unto you, there be many things to come. And behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. So he's going to talk about the Savior. In verse 11 he says, And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death, that which bind his people, and he will take upon them their infirmities, and his bowels may be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things, nevertheless the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. And I want to follow up those testimonies, or Alma's testimony, with a few of the apostles' testimonies. And I'll start off with Elder Neil A. Maxwell. And here he wrote of the Savior's familiarity with the afflictions of mortality and with our individual transgression. He says, He knows by actual personal experience, because not only did he suffer pains, afflictions, and temptations of every kind during his second estate, but he also took upon himself our sins as well as our pains, sicknesses, and infirmities. Thus he knew knew, not in abstraction, but in actuality according to the flesh, the whole of human suffering. He bore our infirmities before we bore them. He knows perfectly well how to succor us. We can tell him nothing of pain, temptation, or affliction. He learned according to the flesh, and his triumph was complete. And Elder Jeffrey R. Holland stated, Sucker is used often in the scriptures to describe Christ's care for and attention to us. It means literally to run to. What a magnificent way to describe the Savior's urgent effort in our behalf. Even as he calls to us to come to him and follow him, he is unfailingly running to help us. And I love those testimonies and the understanding of Christ because Christ really does understand us. He understands our fears. He understands our anger at times, whether it's justified or not. He understands why we feel the way we feel, which is why it is only through him that we can be healed. And before I bear my own testimony of Christ at the end of the podcast, I want to just go over just these last few verses in this chapter where Alma has organized the church in Gideon as well. And he he calls priesthood leaders, and this is very much in line with Doctrine and Covenants section 121, where we read about the rights of the priesthood in verses 41 through 42. But he's talking about how priesthood brethren should act. He says, Now, my beloved brethren, I have said these things unto you, that I might awaken you to a sense of your duty to God, that ye may walk blameless before him, that ye may walk after the holy order of God, after which ye have been received. And now I would that ye should be humble, and be submissive, and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of 
of patience and long suffering, being temperate in all things, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times, asking for whatsoever things ye stand in need, both spiritual and temporal, always returning thanks unto God for whatsoever things ye do receive. And see that ye have faith, hope, and charity, and then ye will always abound in good works. I'm going to read this quote by President Packer. It says, The priesthood is very, very precious to the Lord. He is very careful about how it is conferred, and by whom. It is never done in secret. I have told you how the authority is given to you. The power you receive will depend on what you do with this sacred unseen gift. Your authority comes through your ordination. Your power comes through obedience and worthiness. I'm so grateful for the priesthood power and the authority to act in Christ's name to do those things that he would have us do here upon the earth, to take care of the poor, to strip ourselves of pride and envy, to seek ways to bless and comfort others, to help others along their way, to testify of Christ. And I want to bear my testimony that Christ is our Savior and that it is through him that we can return to live with our Father in heaven and that he knows us, he understands us, and he loves us. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or to send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thanks and have a blessed day.